I would invite you to keep your Bibles open. If you haven't turned there yet, please turn there with me as we go to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at the second half of that chapter there. We're going to simply make our way through. We have a lot of things that we are going to be about in our gathering this morning, so we need to dive right into the text. And the first thing that we see waiting for us right at the beginning of verse 16 is that Paul, when he walks into Athens, he sees a city full of idols. Now, let's get ourselves situated in the passage this morning. Paul is continuing his second missionary journey here. Most recently, he's traveled to Thessalonica and to Berea. In Berea, he met the noble Bereans who were eager to hear the gospel and diligent to examine the word, the noble Bereans. What a contrast they are to Athens, what we find there. The Athenians, they also were eager, but their eagerness was for vain philosophy so that their idolatry might multiply all the more. In Athens, Athens is one of the, the great cities of antiquity, and it had risen to the heights of learning and knowledge. It was known in, in much of the world to be a height of philosophy and learning and wisdom. Even under the Roman dominance of the day, it continued to be a center for thought and discussion, discussion even in that Roman Greek culture. Now, if you look with me at verse 16, we see Paul was waiting for them, that is the, his companions who had stayed behind in Thessalonica, who were going to join him a little later. His spirit, that is Paul's spirit, was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, full of idols. That is literally true. Let me read with you from one commentary. Pausanias who visited Athens 50 years later, said it was easy, easier to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than it was to meet a man. This was statistically true because the population of Athens was about 10,000, but there were 30,000 statues of gods in that city. It was literally overflowing with idols. Later, Paul will say, I perceive that you are, in every way, you are very religious. You can see why he would say that. The city was literally full of idols. And his spirit was provoked. He's angry. Why is he angry? He's angry at the affront to the glory of God that is represented by all of this idolatry. He knows that every idol is empty and a vain thing, that every idol represents the reality of human hearts that are made to give thanks to God, instead wandering off after lesser things. Let me ask you this, what is your reaction to spiritual blindness and waywardness in our culture? What is your guttural, what is your visceral reaction to idolatry in our midst? For all the data about the increasing percentage in our contemporary culture that identify as, quote, nuns, that is, no religious affiliation, there is a proliferation of spiritual ideas that is ever-increasing. 
even at present in the midst of this no religious affiliation. Our culture is not some sort of secularistic ideal or atheistic religious void that just doesn't bear up with the data. Our culture has philosophies and idolatries, and they are numerous as they are in our households. We live in a city that's full of idols. The rate at which these new ideas are multiplying, they, they make my head spin. Every time I turn on the news, every time I'm listening to, a, seeing a new hashtag make its way through social media or some new cause or moral stand, I think to myself, this isn't a culture that has no belief. It just cannot be so. This is a culture that's blown and tossed by many new beliefs. We live in a city that's full of idols. What is idolatry? Isn't it the vain pursuit of a man-made idea as a means of making sense of the complexities of life? I'll say it again. It's the pursuit of a man-made idea that seeks to make sense of the complexities of our lives. It's the activities of life that divert us from the worship of our creator who has defined us and made sense of reality. Sure, the Athenians, they cast their idols with what? The passage says gold, it says silver, stone, but we cast our idols with Instagram and Twitter feeds, with worldly pursuits and entertainment, accumulation of wealth and consumption. And we cast what we, we understand of reality and we try to make sense of the complexity of life with these things that are our own creation. We live in a city that's full of idols. And so we should ask the question, is it possible that even our own households, our own homes are full of these idols? Now, if you look at the passage, you see in verse 18, Paul greets some interesting people. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, the Epicureans and Stoics, again, a commentary gives us a little insight into who these philosophers were. The Epicureans believe that everything happens by chance, and death is the end, the extinction with no afterlife. They believed there are gods, but these gods have nothing to do with the world. They're practical agnostics who believe pleasure is the chief end of man and that a simple lifestyle is the most pleasurable. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, these were pantheists, believing in everything, believing that everything is a god and that whatever happened to them was their destiny. Consequently, they sought to live with apathy and detachment, a fatalistic resignation. Together, these two philosophies represented the popular pagan alternatives for dealing with the plight of humanity apart from Christ. Epicureanism, a simple lifestyle. Stoicism, apathy. Friends, as I look at the culture around us, I still see these two Ways of thinking present in our midst. We have people who live for today, right? And we have people who work today to make something for themselves in the future. 
The most prevalent outlook on life in our culture that I observe is an interesting mashup of these two worldviews. There's a, a vague sense of some kind of afterlife, but any preparation for that life is largely ignored for the sake of worldly pleasure. And then there's a, a vague sense that that God is maybe just everywhere around us or even in us. And so we're coached to listen to our hearts and pursue our dreams, listen deep within. As the millennials become older, there can be a fatalistic realization that life is difficult and the hand that has been dealt by a previous generation is not a generous one, like the Stoics. And yet, the millennials are still encouraged to continue to consume and continue to entertain themselves like the Epicureans. So we have this mash-up of worldviews and ideals at work in our cultural moment. We would do well to pay attention to them, to understand that they're not new. This has been around for millennia. But both of these schools of thought, both in Athens 2,000 years ago and today have a common comment on Paul and the gospel that he preaches. Here's what they say in verse 18. It says, he's just a babbler. When he's talking about this religion, about this God, about this resurrection, he's just a babbler. He doesn't fit into our existing categories, so he must just be a confused talker. Today, by and large, the gospel is shouted down by the prevailing philosophies of the age as just babble or worse. This is what biblical Christianity sounds like to so many today. The culture around us has a mishmash of ideals and can't really agree on much of anything. You could not argue that the culture in which we live is a culture of agreement, right? But one thing that by and large can be agreed upon is that biblical Christianity doesn't really fit anymore. It's just old babble, maybe even a foreign deity. So what do we mean by biblical Christianity? We mean what Paul meant. We mean that Jesus is at the center with his cross and with his resurrection. You can see at the end of verse 18 that Paul had been preaching Jesus and the resurrection just as he did in every city that he visited. I think that's a really important point, especially if you've paid attention to this passage before. Sometimes the the emphasis on this passage is that Paul goes about the Athenians so differently than he does when he goes about in Berea and Thessalonica that he's, he's just really contextualizing here. And he does in a beautiful way. But what is he contextualizing? It is so very much the same message. So much so that they knew that he was talking about Jesus. They knew that he was talking about the resurrection. And they knew it enough to call it Babel. They received it in much the same way that the other cities received this same gospel. Now, as we continue looking at verses 22 through 28... We see this other reality rising up as as Paul does begin to address them in their cultural moment. Here's what he has to say. You, in verse 22, and of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Very religious. What does that look like? I mean, 
With all of the nuns and their lack of religious affiliation, certainly we live in an age where religion is a byword, right? We're not very religious. We couldn't be confused. We couldn't be addressed like that. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine in my living room about this. He asked me the question, well, what is religion? And I told him that I understand religion to be a way of life and pursuit of meaning that flows out of our understanding of ultimate reality. Religion is simply the way that we live in light of what we believe to be actually true in the universe. Another word for that is our worldview. It's the way of our life based upon our worldview. And our religious pursuits flow out of our view of reality, our view of the world. That's such an important point. Here's what Paul was able to do. He was able to look around at Athens, to look around at the culture and see the people worshiping. Can you do that? Can you look around? Can you look around and see the religion of the age, the devotion? What do you see driving the people in your communities and workplaces, in your household, in your family? He was able to discern their conclusions and their sense of what is the meaning of life from their religious pursuit. Now, we live in a very busy culture. I'm overwhelmed thinking about how busy our culture is. All right? We have clutter. We have distractions in every crevice of our life, and it's not easing up. But do we realize that our lives are full of all of these things because there is something that we are pursuing. There's something that we can believe that we can obtain by all of this busy pursuit, that just like the Athenians, our lives are cluttered with idols because we're pursuing meaning and purpose and fulfillment and hope, and we think that in the midst of all of this busyness, we might actually have it. There is a way that we view the world. And that view shapes and focuses our energies, our use of time and our spending of money. And that is our religion. If we can discern it, if we can notice it in the midst of all the busyness, if we can tell, pay attention to what we've been busy with, we will discover our religion. We pursue these things because we believe in them we will find purpose and Perhaps some sort of salvation, hope, joy. And so here's what the Apostle Paul does in Athens. He presents an alternative view of reality. I want you to notice, he doesn't go at trying to change their religion. He tries to change their view of reality. And that would change, Lord willing, their religion. He explains to them what is true. At the end of verse 23, Paul tells the Athenians that though they have all these thoughts about the world, they still have a sense that there is something that is unknown. Look at verse 23. I passed along and observed the object of your worship. Do you see that? He's paying attention to the worship that's taking place in the culture. I found also an altar with his inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's about to tell them what they know they don't know. The point 
is that their view of the world is insufficient to deal with reality, and they have a sense that that's true. I just haven't met anyone, like actually met someone that that you know and you have conversations with, and they're actually willing to tell you what they're actually thinking about. I just haven't met someone who's enmeshed in the busyness and hectic nature of our culture, who's not willing to admit that it doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't seem to be going somewhere that looks like hope. Often it will turn to tears and to despair. And so the Apostle Paul offers an alternative view of reality. And I want you to see where he begins. Look at verse 24 with me. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it. That's where he begins, with the God who made the world. There is a creator God. Fundamentally true about the Christian faith, our understanding of reality, is this is the first reality. There is a God, and he created. You can memorize the first verse of the Bible real quick and real simple, right? God, in the beginning, God. And you have to pause there for a second to, to realize what is, what's in that statement. If you, in the beginning, God created. So the first thing that happened is creation. No, the first thing that happened is God. The first thing that is, the first and ultimate reality is God. In the beginning, God. And that God who is, who is there, spoke and is not silent. He created all that there is. You may think that this thing and that thing about morality or about meaning in life, but what if you, who have all of these thoughts, what if you also have a maker? What if that were true? Just entertain that thought for a moment. What if you have a creator God. And about this, Paul offers three implications very quickly. The first implication is God does not live in temples. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The Athenians had cast such a multitude of idols and then set them up in their places of worship. Man had, had made God and then devoted their lives to their own conceptions of them. Man had made their gods, and then lived their life in religious devotion to what they had made. But Paul says he's not served by human hands. Why? Because he made you. (laughs) Your very existence is served by the word of his mouth. Let me summarize Paul's argument here. You may think that Whatever you think about God, and you're welcome to think it. Based upon your conceptions about God and about reality, you may decide in your own heart that your life is good and that you are upright and that you are righteous. You are welcome to decide that. But you do not get to define reality by that. You've changed nothing. You've created nothing. If there is a creator God, he is still your maker no matter what you think. God is not confined to life inside the definitions of the world that you create in your mind. 
If God is creator, God is creator. Secondly, God made the nations. He continues, nor is he served by human hands in verse 25, as though he had need of anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth. Why does he say that? Why does he bring attention to that? He's making it clear that he isn't sharing some new mythology of a foreign deity. He isn't simply a Jewish man making his way around, spreading the word about a local deity. He isn't sharing word of a mere man-made idol or a culture's religion. More than that, Paul's telling them that all of mankind are truly one mankind with a common ancestor. So one of the things that that does is it erases any sense of superiority that the the Greeks and the Athenians and the Romans might have had. All are descended from one man, and that man was created by God. There's one God whom all of mankind has descended from. Now, I can't move forward without making note of the fact that Paul seems to think that the historical Adam and Eve are an essential component of the communication of the gospel. If we are to do business with creation and its relationship with the gospel, we have to do business with the proclamation of the gospel in Acts chapter 17. Even in a culture that's antagonistic to that claim, And that was true then, just as it is now. And yet the claim is made by Paul. He believes it's something that must be shared in order to understand the nature and the reality of the Christian faith. Thirdly, God made mankind for himself. This is beautiful. Continuing on, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Here's what he's saying. Against the Epicureans, you don't exist for your own self-satisfaction. And against the Stoics, there is more to life than fatalistic survival. And you know it, even as you go on about practicing your, your view of the world and the religion that flows from it, even as you go about those things, you have the sense that there is more to the universe than you and survival. This is the most bold and important of Paul's claims. We exist by God. We exist for God. And that really leads to where he goes in verse 29, to the end of his proclamation in verse 31. God is not us. God is not us. Because God is creator, he cannot be explained merely in terms of creation. He says it in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God cannot be relegated to mere gold or silver or stone. We're not free to make up God. Go ahead and do it, but you didn't change reality. If there is a creator, God, there is a creator 
God, and he is who he is, as he himself claims to be. We're not free to make up God, but instead, as Paul calls the Athenians, we are to repent of our idolatry. We're to repent of our man-made, creative, artistic imaginations. Particularly with the coming of Jesus, we have no excuse for ignorance about God. I would encourage you to write this in your margin. Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. We're going to spend a good bit of time in Colossians this morning as we move on to some other elements in our service. But in Colossians chapter 1, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You see, it's the same gospel. Whether he's talking in Colossae or in Athens, we have the image of the invisible God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we are without excuse. We are not free to imagine God when he's revealed himself to us. More than that, we will be judged for our rejection of Jesus, the resurrected king of creation. That's Paul's proclamation of the gospel in Athens. And what we see at the end of the passage is something we've seen a number of times already. We have the reality of the resurrection coming to bear upon people's souls, and they react. They react. Paul's made his argument. He's presented his case. Everything that Paul set up to this point has a great flow of philosophical thought, and his hearers were probably enjoying themselves. They might have found it entertaining. They liked to do this sort of thing in Athens at the Areopagus, where the philosophers gathered. It was new after all, and they loved to hear a new idea, the passage says. But then Paul begins to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And this is where philosophy breaks into reality. You see, the resurrection is not a philosophical ideal. It is a historical reality. It's more than a religious thought. It's a claim about Christianity's view of the world. The reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead makes a claim upon all who hear it to submit to his lordship. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's the call upon everyone who hears it to respond. The Lord is risen indeed. And they heard it. And some said, ah, there he goes battling again. We were enjoying this so much. But then he had to start talking about Jesus and the resurrection and stuff. Division arises. The division between those who mocked and those who believed. We've seen that division rise up in every place that the Apostle Paul has gone. But thank God that something happens. Friends, you enjoy reading Acts. You like seeing all the stories and the miracles and people who are unable to walk from birth. And they stand up and they dance. And we're like, oh, it's so cool. I love seeing the miracles in Acts. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Verse 34. The greatest miracle in Acts are the miracles like this verse. Some men joined him and believed, among whom 
also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. And now there's with him. People who are entrenched in another way of seeing reality. People who had purchased the idols and perhaps made them themselves and propagated many new ideas. On that day, saw reality for what it is. They believed. They didn't mock. They repented and placed their faith in this God. Friends, that's miracle. That is the miracle of God at work in the proclamation of the world, of the word. What's the result? What's the result of, in Athens? Well, the result is vanity and fatalism of the Epicureans and Stoics continues. There's something that Paul doesn't show up in Athens with, a motto, we're going to change this city and redeem it for Jesus. He preaches and he leaves, and they still believe a bunch of foolishness. Idolatry is still the rule of the day in Athens. But God had planted his church. And friends, that church is going to grow up in that city by means of the proclamation of the gospel. Friends, the preaching of the gospel is to bring clarity to the minds and hearts of men and women about reality. The gospel is to confront our thoughts about the world. Central to that reality is that we have a maker and we may know him through the person and work of Jesus. And we're no different than the Athenians. We're all prone to idolatry and vain views about reality and various imaginations. Such wondering is sin, and the call for us is to repent. The call to every one of us this morning is that we would repent of our wayward failure to acknowledge God as God, our failure to give thanks to him for his provision, for his kindness, for his creative work, which is the greatest generosity of our God, his creation itself. And to believe that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we may be forgiven our sin and given new and eternal life. That is the call on every one of us again this morning. And so I would call you this morning to do what Paul did. Look around, see it. See the idols that are all about us. Do not fail to consider how the city is full of idols, the city in which we live. And perhaps that city has left vestiges of idols and idolatry even in our households. When you look around, friends, one of the first places to look is your immediate proximity. Let us consider carefully the culture in which we have enmeshed ourselves and let us then repent and confess. Let our minds be changed and confronted and believe that there is one God and Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, We pray this morning that your word would confront us, that you would allow us to see. Sometimes we get so busy in the practice of our religion, we forget the reality that it's reflected upon, and we we fail to realize that this this isn't Christianity. This isn't the worship of a creator and a redeemer. This is another thing. 
I pray that we would see the reality of what we understand and what we believe, that you would confront us, that you would call us to repentance, that you would let us see the grace of Jesus, your love for your creation, that we would repent and believe. I pray that that would be so this morning, that there, if, if there is one who came in here this morning with another view of reality that is confronted by Jesus, his cross and his resurrection, Lord, I pray, pray that that one would repent and believe, would be honest, I've believed a vain thing, but now I see that there is a creator. And I pray that all of us would live in light of that reality and that we would see that there is salvation, there is hope, and there is joy to be found in what you have revealed in your word. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for these things in your name. Amen.